Sooner or later, said Robert Louis Stevenson, everyone sits down to a banquet of consequences. And I gotta tell you, whether you're hungry or not, you're gonna eat what life serves up. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Season 5, Episode 20, Lebanon War Part 5, The End of an Endless War. Every war has its trauma. And in a country like Israel, whose first three decades saw four major wars, imprint left by each one is a major element of national psychology. I mean, take 1948, the War of Independence, where Israel lost 1% of its populace and, frankly, was happy to survive considering the context. The impression left there was the moral clarity of late Breira. We have no choice. 1956 is a bit more slippery to lay hold of, but if I put it into the context of a keystone in the retaliation strategy that Israel was using to solidify its borders in the 50s, I would say that the impression left here was how far we're willing to go. Now, 1967 may seem obvious in its miraculous redemptive narrative, even if only the secular redemption of moving from a certainty of destruction to a thunderous victory in less than a week. But the psychological piece that the Six-Day War adds to the Israeli national makeup is perhaps best defined, in my eyes, as disorientation. On one level, I'm talking about shock, ditty, gizzy euphoria over a new and unexpected world in which the country not only still exists, but is now three times its former size. Furthermore, the sudden sense of power after such deeply ingrained generations of weakness, or at least desperation, is incredibly disorienting. And, frankly, what could be more bewildering than an actual spark of the messianic light? Because when Mashiach comes, let it be soon, let it be now, we're looking for a total reorientation. But in the meantime, flashes of that light can easily make the collective head spin. Now, the Yom Kippur War of 1973 adds to the makeup the bitter lessons derived from a deep knowledge that while we can withstand anything, the real question is why we have to, and frankly, whether it's worthwhile. And then there's Lebanon. In the beginning, the war offered a taste of the moral clarity of 1948. It ran through the entire country and really Jews and frankly, honest people around the world. In July of 1982, even after the IDF had pushed past their 40-kilometer target and on to Beirut, but before the intensive bombing of the city, public opinion polls in Israel showed that more than two-thirds of the country felt justified in all facets of the war. By December, less than six months later, only three months after Sabra and Shatila, the figure was down to 34%. Israelis still almost universally looked at the PLO as the enemy, if not quite the Nazis they were in Prime Minister Bacon's eyes, then certainly bloodthirsty murderers. But nonetheless, there was a growing sense in the country that no matter how painful the cost of terror and cross-border wars, the invasion had been a rational choice, not an existential one. And as such, its costs deserve to be clearly weighed against its benefits. The type of war being fought, long-term siege, saturation bombings to destroy terrorist strongholds in urban areas, anti-terror operations amongst a thick civilian population felt different to soldiers and civilians alike. 
and a fear began to bubble up amongst some in Israel that the real price of this war wouldn't be in blood, be it Jewish or Arab, but rather in the souls of our sons, brothers, and husbands who were fighting. Shimon Avidan had been a soldier since the pre-state days. He'd actually commanded the Givati Brigade, a major infantry brigade, in the War of Independence until his extreme left views brought him to conflict with Ben-Gurion and thus out of the army. No war is ethical, he told an interviewer from the New York Times in February of 1983. You are preparing people to behave in an unethical way, to kill someone else. The question is the aims of war. Are they acceptable? Are they moral? Are they serving your nation? And Avidan claimed that in Lebanon, for the first time, the state of Israel pushed aside the basic belief that when you fight, you have to be absolutely sure you're fighting for a just cause. Now, then he went on in a juxtaposition of images, which eventually became commonplace, but in 1983 was quite raw, and spoke of seeing Jewish history, even the Warsaw Ghetto, in the faces of the Arab civilians suffering in Lebanon. And what was his fear? He said, you will enter a vicious circle, blood for blood, and at the end you cannot remember where was the beginning, and you are not more just than the other side. We now look like every other nation. The same interviewer spoke with Gidon Shamir, a career soldier who at age 34 had already seen combat in four previous wars. His experience in Lebanon in specific was shaped by the PLO's use of child soldiers and their well-known tactic of placing military positions in the heart of civilian areas. He said when you fight against a regular army, you know you have one line of soldiers against another line of soldiers. Here, you want to get to this village and get that house. You never know who's going to shoot you. And you fire back and you kill him. And you come in and say, it was a kid. And what am I going to do next time? You have two choices, said Shamir. One, not to fight and take the chance they will kill you. Or to fight and kill them. And after you have time to think and say, what's going on with me? Who am I fighting against? Why? What for? You hear the confusion? Alon Shemi, a 30-year-old commander in the paratroopers, gave voice to that confusion and the discontent rising amongst many soldiers toward the politicians who had chosen to start this war and who, in their eyes, had political goals in pursuing it. By sending the army into Lebanon for anything other than to push the PLO out of range, he claimed that Prime Minister Begin and Defense Minister Sharon had broken what he called the widest Zionist consensus of the people, our loyalty, our responsibility for the army, our willingness to fight. Because that consensus was based on the idea, quote, that the army would be used just for necessity, for what we call no-choice wars. But the Prime Minister and the Defense Minister had made a choice, and it felt wrong to Shemi and many others. Furthermore, the deeper they went into the field, the worse it seemed to appear. To refuse to fight was impossible. It was a shattering of what he called the basic agreement of collective life in this country. But to continue on felt unacceptable. It was only on his first leave back in Israel, when Shemi attended the funerals of two good friends who died in combat, that he began to confront how he truly felt. And so together with a group of peers, including Avraham Borg, son of Interior Minister Yosef Borg, he formed Soldiers Against Silence. Together they agreed to speak against the war after their discharge, but nonetheless maintained their commitment to serve again if called up. But there were more extreme responses already developing. 
Another group of soldiers, calling themselves Yesh Gvul, there is a limit, was circulating a statement hinting at their refusal to serve in Lebanon. Daniel Hartman, son of important religious Zionist thinker David Hartman, and himself a dedicated teacher even this day, was at the time a tank commander during the fierce battles fought with the Syrians around the Becca Valley. And despite his pain over the loss of friends and even family, and the disillusionment he felt with the government, Hartman saw this moment in its real potential. The battle has just begun. The real battle now is in the hands of the educators and people like ourselves who are dedicating their lives to educate the people of Israel. The real battle has to start now, not fighting the Arabs, but a battle inside the state of Israel to decide not what the borders of the state will be, but what type of state it will be. We can't waste this war, he said. It's very important not to waste this war. The Israeli organization Peace Now was originally founded in response to the peace talks with Egypt in 1978. We did touch on that story at one point, how when the talks looked to be breaking down, a group of 384 combat soldiers and officers signed what was called the Officer's Letter, sending it to Prime Minister Begin and calling on him not to miss the historic opportunity for peace. From that letter and the supporting demonstrations, an Israeli peace movement was born if not exactly without precedent, certainly unprecedented in its scope and activity. Between the Camp David Accords and the Lebanon War, peace now slowly expanded and began to position itself exactly opposite Gush Emunim, the activist settlement group that we've spoken about so much. In March of 1980, peace now organized protests in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Haifa and laid the foundation stone of their familiar stance today that building homes for Jews in Yudan, Shomron, and Gaza was an escalation which would only incite hatred and make the conflict harder to solve. But their real coming of age as an organization was the massive demonstration held less than two weeks after Sabra and Shatila, where 400,000 people, almost 10% of Israel's population, came together to call for a commission of inquiry into those massacres. That rally in Tel Aviv was organized together with the Soldiers Against Silence, those veterans that I spoke of, like Alon Shemi, and their presence gave a power and legitimacy strong enough to overcome the deep-seated resistance of Israeli society to the very idea of protesting during wartime, something that even the disaster of 1973 hadn't managed to do. But overcoming such resistance wasn't without a fight. Many Israelis shared the basic sentiments of Prime Minister Begin, who rejected the world's sudden and, in his eyes, hypocritical concern over intercommunal violence in Lebanon as nothing short of anti-Semitism. Because when Jews were involved, then death mattered. Never again will our citizens, men, women, and children, be attacked, maimed, and killed by armored bands operating from Lebanon and armed and supported by the Soviet Union and its satellites. There is hope to believe that such arrangements will be made and that all foreign forces, without exception, will be withdrawn from Lebanon and there will be an independent, free Lebanon based on its territorial integrity. And the day is near when such a Lebanon and Israel will sign a peace treaty 
and live in peace forever. Others rejected the moral agonizing of people like Shimon Avidan, who claimed that their greatest fear was what Lebanon would do to our soldiers. Such public angsting was labeled as weakness, if not treasonous. I mean, after all, what does it do to the morale of soldiers in the field to see a full-spread New York Times magazine article entitled Israel, Voices of Moral Anguish, where soldiers publicly question the morality of their own actions, much less their leadership? Not to mention the very question of why the New York Times is running such an article at all. Now, the Israeli social fabric is always stretched thin. And I, for one, see it as one of the true signs of God's active hand in history that we've held it together as long and as well as we have. But peace now is vocal opposition to an ongoing war in which citizens were fighting and dying, took things to their limit, and perhaps beyond them. On February 10th, 1983, Peace Now organized a demonstration in Jerusalem. It was actually part of a series of demonstrations. The Khan Commission that had been convened in the wake of the Sabra and Shatila massacres had just released its report, and Peace Now was taken to the streets to insist the government adopt its recommendations, especially the dismissal of Defense Minister Ariel Sharon. Tension between right and left had been escalating ever since Prime Minister Begin was forced basically by public sentiment to seat the commission, and by all accounts, they'd reached their height on this day. Counter-protesters screamed, cursed, and pushed at the demonstrators as they marched resolutely toward the Prime Minister's office. And among the Peace Now activists was a young man named Emil Grunzweig. Emil had actually been born in Romania, son of a survivor of Auschwitz. And as a paratrooper, he'd served in 1967, the War of Attrition, and the Yom Kippur War. And of course, he'd served in Lebanon. He was now living in Jerusalem, completing a master's degree at the Hebrew University and working in educational projects with the Van Leer Institute there in Jerusalem. Emil was a deep believer in the power of education and its ability to bring change. And his project with the Van Leer Institute was to organize Jewish-Arab summer camps in order to promote understanding amongst the youth, something which was almost unheard of in 1982. Emil's close friend, Sila Ushpitz, was with him at the demonstration, and she later recalled his optimism as they started out. She said he thought the protests would succeed in changing something. And he was correct, although unfortunately not in the way he hoped. As the protesters drew near the Prime Minister's office, a man stood out from the surrounding crowd. It was Yona of Rushmi, and he pulled from his pocket a grenade, which he lobbed into the mob of the protesters. Emil was killed almost instantly, and nine other demonstrators were wounded. Among them, by the way, were two future cabinet ministers, Avram Bug and Yuval Steinitz, both at the time members of Peace Now. Now, Avrushmi was caught in 1984, convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison, but he expressed no remorse for his action even much later when he was released from prison, saying in an interview that, quote, he didn't buy the grenade to leave it at home. I threw it in the crowd and went home to sleep. Now, if you've been listening to the Jewish story long enough, then you know that political violence between right and left in Israel and the vehement incitement which both accompany and create it are not new. They certainly weren't invented in 1983. I mean, just go back to the story of the Altalena, and you'll remember that pre-state, the situation between right and left verged on civil war. But since then, since the establishment of the state, 
such an internecine struggle had been muted, at least. Emil Grunswag's murder brought them right back to the center of the public square. And remember, the history since includes assassination and violence of every kind. But in 1983, a grenade tossed into the crowd did more than rob the world of a good-hearted Jew. It highlighted how deeply split Israeli society had become over this first war of choice. And not just Israeli society. In America, the Jews aren't quite killing each other in the streets, but there are definitely rumblings of a conflict to come. In July of 1982, as the siege of Beirut was reaching its explosive heights, 67 American Jewish scholars, writers, and rabbis signed an advertisement in support of Peace Now. The ad expressed, quote, grave misgivings over the fighting in Lebanon and advocated, quote, national self-determination for Palestinians. And then it posed the following question to American Jews. Is it not time for us, as supporters of Israel, to speak out critically about those Israeli policies we know to be mistaken, self-defeating, and contrary to the original Zionist vision. Now, leaving aside whose original Zionist vision they're referring to, such a public break in a pro-Israel consensus hadn't been seen amongst American Jewish leaders since the disappearance of the last vestiges of anti-Zionist elements in the wake of the Six-Day War. It seemed to be the beginning of a larger shift. And as Leonard Fain, editor of Moment magazine, and supporter of Peace Now put it, of course, in a New York Times article, our powerful communal disposition has always been to support Israel and rally around the flag. The problem is that the flag now is in a suburb of Beirut, and that's a long way to go for a rally. Some people dropped off along the way, at the Litani River to be exact, which is just north of the Israeli border in Lebanon, if you are not familiar. Fain went on to explain the newfound willingness he saw to take a critical stance by saying, quote, this is Israel's first optional war and the first with large numbers of civilian casualties. This creates an emotional distance that permits, even encourages, debate. Now, ignoring what appears to be incredible ignorance of Israel's past wars, Fain admitted that those interested in this debate were, quote, not in a majority by any means, but that there are nonetheless growing number of American Jews, he said, who feel Israel's security interests would be best served by addressing the Palestinian issue directly and politically, not indirectly and militarily. Or, as Rabbi Balfour Brickner, head of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in Manhattan and signature to that Peace Now ad put it, all of the exclamation points are being bent now into question marks. We're still small. I wouldn't even call it a groundswell, but it's got to make the government of Israel nervous. And in signs of more militant things to come, that very month, a group of Jews in San Francisco, of course, published a denunciation of Israel, saying, quote, peace and survival of the Jewish people cannot be achieved through Israeli aggression. The National Emergency Committee on Lebanon had come into being, an umbrella of groups we might today call Jewish progressives, together with Palestinian and other progressive communal organizations, even though, of course, that word is a bit of a historical anachronism in this context. President of the Association of Reform Rabbis of Greater New York, Rabbi Israel Dresner, was a speaker at a press conference organized by the National Emergency Committee, and he told the assembled press, hundreds of thousands of Israelis and millions of Jews in the United States and around the world are opposed to what's going on. I am a lifelong Zionist, 
dedicated to a democratic and just Israel. But what is happening today in Lebanon has nothing to do with that kind of Israel. Not particularly tough or unique words, although we could question his numbers, but the Christian clergymen who joined Dresser on stage were far less restrained in their statements. And in another sign of things to come, he stood silent while they denounced the genocide being perpetrated by Israel and compared it to the Holocaust. Now, it wasn't simply moral or political questions that were driving this shift in Jewish attitudes toward Israel. The war on Lebanon would be Israel's longest conflict, even if we say it was over formally in 1985, and certainly was its most televised. Even before the horror of Sabra and Shatila, American Jews, and Americans in general, had been inundated with graphic images from the invasion and the siege of Beirut. Images which often lacked the type of quality reporting which could offer real understanding of basic questions like, why did Israel invade? How did the PLO end up in Lebanon? And why are Israeli planes striking suburban areas to get rid of them? Then, as now, the Israeli army was committed to providing press maximum access to information and even access to the battlefield, whereas the PLO controlled information with the intensity of a totalitarian state and often found the International Press Corps to be its useful idiots, if not its downright active allies. Israeli-American author and journalist Mati Friedman actually has a fantastic analysis on why it is that Israel seems to take such an outside role in global reporting and on how the reporting so often fits a political if not strangely theological, preconceived story. If you want to read that, email me, robmikefoyer at gmail.com. I'm happy to share the link with you. It's a worthwhile read. But for now, just know that the reporting out of Lebanon cemented Israel's shift in the eyes of the world from being David to Goliath. And for many Americans, embarrassed Jews prominent among them, began the slide into its representation of everything which was wrong with the nation-state and the wars which it is wont to wage. Now, just for your information, the International Press Corps swarming Beirut and showing every image they could of mangled children and gun-doting Jews had taken a far less active stance on massacres which had taken place quite recently and less than 100 miles away. For instance, in February of 1982, the Muslim Brotherhood rose against Syrian leader Hafez Assad it mostly centered a rebellion around the city of Hama. Assad's army laid siege to the city for 27 days, and the lowest estimate says killed 2,000 people. The higher numbers are in the tens of thousands, but you know what? We'll never know. Why? Because when they were done with their killing, the Syrian army bulldozed the city over the dead. And the press commented, but they certainly didn't do the deep dive, much like the difference we see today when there's a periodic fighting in Gaza and there's nearly half a million dead in the Syrian civil war. And the impact of media went beyond images right into propaganda run wild. News crews were told that the story was Israeli-caused death, not the old news of atrocities being committed by the PLO against Lebanese. Feh, who cares about intercommunal violence? And when the Lebanese Red Cross claimed 600,000 people had been displaced in Lebanon and more than 10,000 killed, even though the pre-war population was less than half a million, the numbers were run as facts, even though they originated with the Palestinian Red Crescent run by Yasser Arafat's brother. And that's just one drop in the bucket. If confronted, 
Western media outlets often justified their behavior by saying, well, they held Israel to a higher standard than that of third world dictators, which by the way, so do I. But when I hear that, it also smacks of something beyond high standards. I mean, when only one country in the entire world, much less the Middle East, is being held to such a standard, why would that be? Notice the international press didn't make nearly as much a fuss when a few months before the British, I mean, about as Western country as you can get, invaded the Falkland Islands and under heavy press censorship killed hundreds of Argentinians. But I digress. In our story, not every American Jew was rocked to their core by what was happening in Lebanon, nor did every Jewish leader join the opposition. Some pundits even questioned whether a real change was taking place in the attitude of American Jewry or whether this wasn't just a case of a media-generated reality. Norman Podritz, whose story we told back in episode one of this season, was still the editor of Commentary Magazine in 1982 and remained the most unbending supporter of Israel among secular intellectuals. He saw no surprises amongst those who were suddenly writing against Israeli policy or signing statements of concern. Potter had said most of these dissidents were people who had never really shown concern for Israel in the first place. Quote, this is just a guess, but maybe 10%, even 15% of American Jews have been unsympathetic or indifferent to Israel. Those people tend to service on certain occasion. You're getting some who were converted to Israel in 1973 and are being deconverted now, but they were never very strong supporters in the first place. And always sensitive to the psychodrama that can lay behind so much public political posturing, Potteritz also objected to the style of dissent he was seeing. The way people congratulate themselves in dissenting is offensive to me, he said. They say it takes courage, but if anything, it takes courage to support Israel in certain circles. They're conforming in those circles, in my opinion. Again, this was said 40 years ago. Back then, it was far from clear that there was a change taking place in American Jewry's unquestioning support of Israel, whatever and why ever that change might be. Today, it's undeniable that we see the fruits. Though, that's a complicated process which deserves its own conversation at some other time. For now, the confusion in the ranks of American Jewry, especially amongst its leadership, is perhaps best understood through a debate that took place at the end of June 1982, only weeks after the IDF crossed the Lebanese border. The Central Conference of American Rabbis, largest rabbinic organization in the country, held its annual conference that month, and on the agenda was a resolution regarding the ongoing war in Lebanon. It read in part, quote, the tragic loss of human life and the tremendous destruction of property in the Lebanon war leave us concerned, not only for the people in Lebanon, but for the soul of Israel and the Jewish people. The current Israeli leadership interpreted Jewish support for Israel as support for its policies in Lebanon. This is not so. Such a bold declaration of withdrawal of support in time of war did not go unchallenged. One member rabbi who had just returned from a fact-finding mission to Israel stood up to say, was Israel right in pushing beyond its 40-kilometer objective? I don't know. I've been amongst Israel's severest critics. I have criticized Israel in the past, and I shall criticize again. But not now, my friends. Not now. The house is on fire, and my brothers and sisters, whom I dearly love, are in that house. For the sake of Zion, I will hold my peace. But... The patience of many of his fellow leaders was exhausted, as one opposing voice declared, over and over we're told, this is not the time to criticize. 
There are times when we must speak what we know to be right, irrespective of the prevailing circumstances. And lest you think the debate was solely around whether the timing was right, not every member of the CCAR felt Israel had done anything wrong, as one rabbi felt the need to remind his colleagues, our philosophy in Judaism is not to turn the other cheek to evil, but to strike out at evil and cut off its arm. The response he received boggles my mind as a student of the Bible and, frankly, modern Israeli history. And a poison voice called out to him, it's a mistake to confuse moral principles with the politics of a given nation state. Now, in the end, these rabbis were leaders of a certain generation. And as concerned as they might be about the moral and military quagmire that Israel had entered in Lebanon, they didn't take its survival for granted, which, of course, makes them very different from the leaders of the reform movement today. And so it was Rabbi Stanley David of Worcester, Mass., who gave the clinching argument, reminding all those present that this resolution is not going to be read by Israelis. It will go to Congress. It will influence funding. And just like that, the resolution was defeated in a show of hands, nearly two to one. Now, depending on how you look at it, the Lebanon War will go on until Israel beat its final and hasty retreat from the southern security zone in the summer of 2000, almost 18 years to the day after the launching of Operation Shalom HaGalil. And of course, since we've had to cross that border in force at least once since then, clearly it really didn't end even then. Nonetheless, what I want to do now is just sketch the political and military arc of how Israel managed to withdraw to the security zone. And while doing so, to try and understand a little bit how it came to be that the IDF entered Lebanon to drive out the PLO, but withdrew while fighting Hezbollah, an organization that didn't even exist at the beginning of Operation Shalom HaGalil. Hopefully you recall from the last episode that Israel's hopes for a peace treaty with Christian-ruled Lebanon were shattered by the assassination of Falange's president-elect Bashar Gemayel on September 14, 1982. Despite that disaster, by the end of September, more than 14,000 PLO guerrillas had been evacuated from the country, supervised by the multinational force in Lebanon, that international peacekeeping force made up of troops from U.S., U.K., France, and Italy, which had come in in order to keep the peace. Israel also withdrew its forces from West Beirut, and on September 29, 1982, Operation Peace for the Galilee was officially concluded. But by this time, there were too many forces who saw the opportunity in the current chaos of Lebanon for things to end clean. First off, there were still tens of thousands of Syrian troops occupying a good chunk of Lebanon, and Assad's security forces had been the ones to pull the trigger on Bashar Gamal, a fact that every aspiring Lebanese politician both knew and took to heart. And then there was a newcomer, Hizb Ola, the party of God. American forces, like I said, were at the heart of the multinational force that was taking over things in Lebanon. And it was American envoy, Phil Habib, who was working overtime to craft some sort of deal that would set Lebanon's future on solid political foundations. No surprise, by the way, as the U.S.-Israel special relationship meant that it was the only power seen by the Arab world as able to control Israel and thus sort this mess out. In the eyes of the president, that was all to the good. Remember, in 1982, Ronald Reagan and his advisors 
saw the world almost entirely through the eyes of the U.S.-Soviet rivalry, the Cold War. Therefore, even the horror Reagan expressed over the bombing of Beirut and the impact that Sabrin Shatila had on Israel's image in American eyes didn't really offset the thrashing of Soviet technology in the Beka Valley, the weakening of Soviet client state Syria, and the crushing of the PLO, which was Soviet-backed terror in the eyes of America. Perhaps that's why the Americans didn't see the Islamists coming. Lebanon's Shiite Muslims are concentrated in the Beka Valley, southern Lebanon, and southern Beirut. And for much of Lebanon's modern history, they've been both material poor and therefore politically weak, easy prey for the PLO who set up a terror state in their midst on Israel's northern border. In 1974, Shiite religious leader Musa al-Sadr formed Amal, the first real Shia political party, and, of course, militia, and he labeled it the movement of the dispossessed. Despite al-Sadr's disappearance in 1978, or if you know anything about Shia theology and the idea of the hidden imam, maybe because of it, Amal gained momentum, and with the Iranian revolution in 1979 and the rise to power of a militant expansionist Shiite regime, it started to really grow. Now, since its earliest days, Shia Islam had been largely characterized by quietism and a non-political stance. It was a condition for survival necessitated by their status as largely a persecuted minority in the majority Sunni Islam world. But that changed with the Iranian revolution of 1979. Now there was political Shiism, and the defense of that political Shiism became paramount. Ayatollah Khomeini was preaching a new doctrine, one that placed revolution ahead of self-preservation. And he was claiming that only the willingness for self-sacrifice in defense of political Shia would bring about the redemption, which he called the revealing of the hidden imam. But it took Israel's entry into Lebanon to complete the radicalization of the Shia there. And likely during the siege of Beirut, Islamist elements of Amal broke away to form what eventually became known as Hezbollah, the party of God. Now, Hezbollah is perhaps most infamous for being the perfectors of suicide bombing. They can't claim to have invented the notion, but they certainly took its destructive potential to new military and political heights. On November 11, 1982, a Peugeot car packed with explosives struck the seven-story building housing the Israeli military government in the Lebanese city of Tyre. The explosion leveled the structure, killing 75 soldiers, border policemen, Shin Bet agents, along with more than 20 Lebanese and Palestinian prisoners held there. The Israeli government immediately labeled the disaster an accident, and in fact to this day insists that it resulted from an explosion of gas cylinders. But if you go to Baalbek, Lebanon, you'll find a monument there dedicated to a 17-year-old boy named Ahmed Qasr, suicide bomber responsible for that attack. Six months later, there was an undeniable assault, April of 1983, when the U.S. Embassy in West Beirut was struck. This isn't the suicide bombing that you may remember like I do from the earliest days of the 80s, infamous for the death of so many Marines. That will come soon enough. But it was the first attack on an American position, and it took the lives of 63 people. But neither Israel nor the Western powers that made up the multinational force really understood quite yet what they were facing. It was just too easy to dismiss someone willing to turn himself into a human bomb as nothing more than a madman, perhaps at most 
a religious radical, but certainly not the emissary of a movement with a coherent military and political objective. And oh, how wrong they were. Nonetheless, despite this misunderstanding, these attacks did manage to put pressure on America to wrap up the political process. And so, on May 17, 1983, Lebanon and Israel actually signed a U.S.-brokered peace agreement, which spelled out not only the terms of Israeli withdrawal, but made it conditional on the removal of Syrian forces as well. The goal was everybody out of Lebanon. Now, needless to say, Syria was opposed to the agreement, and they weren't alone. Hezbollah didn't have to create the type of sense of embattlement and disenfranchisement amongst Shia that would cause them to flock to their banner. I mean, in southern Lebanon and the slums of Beirut, they'd been living in a war zone, prey to PLO, phalanges, Druze, Syrians for as long as they could remember. But if it weren't for an incident on October 16, 1983, they may not have been able to turn that sense of embattlement and disenfranchisement against Israel and the multinational force who had actually just liberated them from the PLO. There are Israeli soldiers who tell stories about being greeted by Shia Muslims with flowers and candy and food when they came in. That day, October 16th, was Ashura. It's a date which in the Shiite calendar commemorates the Battle of Karbala, where Hussein ibn Ali, grandson of Muhammad, and considered by the Shia the legitimate heir to his leadership of Islam, was martyred, an event that gave birth to what we know as Shia Islam. It's marked as a day of mourning and fasting for Shiites, observed by large processions. And on that day in the town of Nabatia, an Israeli convoy found itself driving right through one such march. Now the crowd was horribly offended and responded by overturning several vehicles, throwing rocks at the soldiers, who themselves responded by firing into the crowd, killing and wounding several people. Such an act of sacrilege had never been seen. And almost overnight, the entire Shiite community turned against Israel and the multinational force seemed to be acting in its interests. Amal and other Shiite organizations responded to this mostly with words of condemnation. But Hezbollah was ready to act. One week later, on October 23rd, two suicide bombers were dispatched against U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut and an apartment building which housed a contingent of French peacekeepers. In a remarkable feat of military planning, the attacks took place just 20 seconds apart, and when the smoke cleared, 298 people were dead. Explosive charges were placed not in one place, but around the building in strategic positions that would bring the entire building down. It brought the entire building down one floor on top of the other. There is is nothing left of the American uh, headquarters or the French headquarters but piles of rubble. Now, in case the world missed the message, Hezbollah issued the following over a radio broadcast. It has become certain to us that our enemies will not leave our country unless we fight them. We have made an oath by God that death will reach them at the hands of the believers even if they are in lofty fortresses. It was a clear choice. Leave Lebanon or die. And America got the message loud and clear, as did the French. Within months, the multinational force had withdrawn and disbanded. Two weeks after those October attacks, Hezbollah suicide bombers struck the Israeli headquarters in Tyre once again, killing again several soldiers despite their heightened state of alert. And now the terror group announced 
that they had abrogated that recently signed Israeli-Lebanese peace treaty and that they would continue suicide attacks until it was done away with. That second attack in Tyre in many ways marked a turning point. Recognizing that suicide bombers were to some degree an unstoppable weapon, the IDF was forced to reduce their vulnerability by moving out of population centers. That in turn allowed Hezbollah to move in, not only reducing collateral damage to civilian bystanders from their attacks, always an unpopular element, but also giving them free reign to develop the social and religious programming which allowed them to take such a dominant position amongst the populace. Because in a country torn for decades, if not longer, by corrupt, greedy factions, the selflessness of the suicide bomber gave Hezbollah the moral high ground. Almost overnight, suicide bombers came to represent altruistic resistance to foreign occupation in the eyes of many Lebanese, not just Shiite. In response, other groups began to advertise the number of suicide attacks in which they were involved, often inflating the number of killed and even attacks themselves to give themselves more credibility as resistant fighters. Hezbollah had turned suicide bombing into the paradigm of resistance. Writers from as far away as Tripoli began to extol its virtues and those of Hezbollah, establishing them as the new bearers of the resistance to Israel. By March of 1984, Lebanon had canceled that peace treaty with Israel under pressure from Syria, and with casualties mounting under the Hezbollah onslaught, the IDF was gradually withdrawing to the south. By June 5, 1985, Israel had completed its withdrawal to a security zone along the Lebanese border, and there the IDF took up a posture of support for the southern Lebanese army, a Christian militia force which had been around for a couple of decades. But the majority of the population in that security zone was Shia, and they didn't need Hezbollah propaganda to convince them that the occupation went on. The war in Lebanon may have come to an end, but it was far from over. And its continuation is a story for another time. I want to thank some folks before I sign off. I want to thank all the folks who give their money, their hard-earned money, to make this show possible, keep it free and widely available. I want to call on you to join them right now. You can go to my website, jewishstory.co. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a button that says, be a patron. You can click on that to give a little bit of per podcast support or contact me, robmikeboyer at gmail.com or on Facebook, robmikeboyer. I'm happy to share with you the details of how to do a one-time donation, how to dedicate a show to those you love, whether they're with us now or they've moved on. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com. They're building a center for global transcendence in the heart of Judea. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S.org.il, for throwing the doors of the Beit Midrash open as wide as possible. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.